Our teaching text this morning is Ecclesiastes 9, 13 through chapter 10. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he, that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what it is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, and he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is a son of nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice and some winged creature will tell the matter. This is the word of the Lord. Hi. You guys all right? Um, Flick with me in your Bibles to uh, back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, if you will. We are in Ecclesiastes, but um, we'll get there in a second. If you're new with us, um, we are in the book of Ecclesiastes where every week we're reminded that your life is meaningless and you will die someday. (laughs) Welcome to village. (laughs) Um, I want to be honest with you and and tell you that um, the past couple weeks as I've been preparing for Ecclesiastes 10... um, I haven't been super excited. Like normally I get to a text and you read it and oh, this is great, I can't wait to do it. But this one, um, has, I've been met with 
kind of frustration. Um, maybe at times, um, if I'm being honest, a little tired of being in this book. I don't know if you feel that way. Um, just want to be honest. Um, but a few days ago, the Lord reminded me of this. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 6. Um, it says, uh, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Stop there. Read it again. Um, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than all the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all people, but, it's, um, but it is because the Lord loves you. Um, I love this, this uh, little section. Um, this is the, the word of the Lord uh, to his people, Israel, um, spoken by Moses, um, and it shows us the heart of God. It shows us why God chooses people to be his. Um, Peter uses this, the same exact language uh, when he's talking about the New Testament church in, uh, in, second, in 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, flick over there as well. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. He uses the same language. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Um, he sets his love on you. He chooses you. Not, not, he, he doesn't choose people because of, because of what they've done, because of their merit. He simply does it because he loves them. Isn't that amazing? Um, I love that, that personal language in, in Deuteronomy 7, verse 8. It says, but it is because the Lord chooses, or the, because the Lord loves you. Um, the Lord has mercifully and graciously chosen you to be his people. Um, the, you know the Bible uses this familial language when talking about this new relationship we have with God. It says we are his sons and his daughters. And we are co-heirs along with Christ. Um, bought with the blood of Jesus to be his people, to be his family, to be his church. The church is the bride of Christ. You are his spouse. And all of this has been done because he chose to just set his love on you. And not because he found that we were lovely. So this is different than an earthly marriage. Like my marriage with Jenny, um, I chose her to be my wife. I, I had to convince her to choose me as well. But in a way, I chose her because I fell in love with her because she's beautiful, because she's kind, because uh, she's funny and caring. But that's not the way God chooses us to be his spouse. He does so, um, it, we're, we're told, not because we, he found that we were lovely and deserving. Uh, in fact, the Bible tells us that he chose us even when we were far from him, even we, when we were against him, his enemies. Um, but he chose to set his love on us, turn us from enemies into family. Like, think about that. You are no longer the enemy of God. You are his spouse. And, and what should this do in us? Um, it should simply cause us to love him in return. Um, he saved us when, he, when we didn't deserve to be saved, and this should cause us to love him. 1 John 4.19 says that we love because he first loved us. So he loves and we love him back. Uh, Jesus even says that now you're told to, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, 
Love him with all of your, your soul, with all of your mind. You've heard that before. But the big question is, what does that mean? What, what, is, what does it mean to love him? Is it that feeling when you, when you came in and like we sang your favorite song and you have these feelings of like thankfulness and um, just the, the thank you that, that you know, he's, he's paid it for me, um, this feeling of love, maybe you raised your hand. Is it that? Yes? Okay, you, you should uh, feel those things toward him. But it's more than that, isn't it? Like when I... Um, I tell Jenny that I love her daily. I, every day I'm like, hey, I love you. Um, when we got married, uh, we stood in front of each other, in, in front of our friends and our family, and we used our words. We made these promises to one another that we would love each other until the day we die. But how do we keep those promises, really? Um, let me tell you, it's, it's more than just a feeling. If you're married, you know that. Um, it's, it's, um, I fulfill those promises by following those words and those feelings up with action, with actually doing what I said I would do. And it's the same with our relationship with God. So if you kept reading in, in Deuteronomy 7, 9, um, uh, down to verse 9, it says, that, it says know, that, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commands. And Jesus says, uh, the same thing, He's, Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. If you love me, then you will act like you love me, and you, and you do that by following my commandments. You, you'll walk in the way, in the manner in which I've set out for you. He says, be like me, because this is actually what I do. So in John 14, verse 31, Jesus says, But I do as the Father has commanded me. I obey him. Why does he do that? So that the world may know that I love my Father. So, that, so this obedience isn't like this legalistic, I'm a Christian now, so I can't do this and this and I have to do this. In fact, this obedience is done out of love for him. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. You'll live like me. You'll follow my ways. Jesus is calling us to walk in wisdom, not in foolishness. What is a fool? Uh, Psalm 14 defines a fool like this. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And I, I don't think that he's talking about all the atheists, uh, because as he goes throughout the rest of that psalm, he starts talking about your deeds, your, your actions. Um, he's saying that it's actually the way the fool lives, the way he conducts himself, it's his actions, it's the way he, he does his life that shouts that he actually doesn't believe in God. And in the same way, it's, it's like uh, my marriage with Jenny, I can say I love you all I want with my words, um, but if I'm unfaithful to her, then my words would be proved to be untrue, okay? She should doubt that I actually love her. My, my foolish actions would say that I don't believe in our marriage, I don't actually believe that I don't actually love her. So we can, we can say that we love God all we want. We can talk about love. We can have those loving feelings all we want. But if our actions don't line up with our words and our feelings, then Jesus would say, you don't actually love me. I've called you to remember me. I've called you to walk in wisdom rather than foolishness. 1 Peter 2.9, again, look at it. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his own possession. You've been bought by the blood of Christ, which is amazing, amazing news. But, but now what? It says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see this, this bringing out of this into this, this newness of life that he talks about? Okay, you've been brought out of darkness into the marvelous light. You've been brought out of being an orphan into the family of God. You've been brought out of not, to, of not receiving mercy into receiving mercy. And I think you can say well, you are being called out of foolishness to walk in wisdom. Come walk in wisdom. Come walk in the light of the way of Jesus. Come out of foolishness where your actions, the way you live, are actually saying you don't believe. And walk in a way where you show that you love God. He's, he's chosen you. He's decided to set his love on you. And you are to respond by loving him in return. How do you love him back? By walking in his ways, by following his design, by walking in wisdom and light rather than foolishness that says you don't believe in God. So as we come to chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes and we read these kind of old strange proverbs of what it means to to live in wisdom rather than folly, um, let's ask the Lord to, to stir in our hearts again uh, a desire to do this, a desire to, like, this, this wisdom literature, even though it's difficult to understand, even though, like, Kohela is this nutty professor, um, even though it's old, um, it's worth it. Like, it's worth digging in and, and sticking with it because, because these things have been breathed out by God. To, to show us what it means to be wise in a world that is fleeting. Let's pray before we move on. And Father, we, we do love you. And but we don't just want to say that with our lips. We want that to be in our hearts. And we want that to be in the way we actually live our lives. And we pray for your help today, God, and we pray that you would open our hearts, that your spirit would teach us, and pray that you do that through my words. And help me to get out of the way, Lord, and help us to understand, uh, not for my, my glory, Lord, even though that's what I desire, help us to, to, to understand for your glory, Lord, for our joy. Pray these things in, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, so... In Ecclesiastes, you can t- finally turn there, uh, chapters 7 through 11 of Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon is, has been talking about how you should live your life, how we can live in wisdom in a meaningless world. And so he's been giving us this, this practical advice on how to live in wisdom and not folly. Uh, last week, um, Andrew did a great job at showing us how we can find a, a real and lasting Uh, significance and depth and beauty in a life that Ecclesiastes says is meaningless. Um, Kohelet puts it, our teacher puts it, that we live under the sun. Um, He describes this world under the sun uh, in his introduction in chapter one. So let me just remind you, he says that uh, all is vanity, okay? He uses the word hevel, it's like vapor, it's smoke, um, it's 
it's in front of us, but we can't really grasp it, and we can't fully understand it and comprehend it. And he says our days seem to be like this endless cycle. Generations come and go. The sun rises and sets. The wind blows round and round. So he's, he's saying, like, what has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new. What is the point in it all? You're going to all end up like dust anyways. But as we were shown last week, um, that's not the case yet. So you're standing here. You're sitting here. You're alive. You're breathing. You're not dust yet, even though you will be. And you, you have life now, so the question is, what are you going to do with it? Um, we, we've been taught that uh, God gives us gifts, um, and he, our teacher, his, his thoughts constantly go back to this wisdom versus folly. So he goes on to talk about some more things, and he comes back to wisdom and folly, and then he'll go on for some more advice, and then he always comes back to wisdom and folly. Um, he's, he's, he's constantly pushing us towards thinking about what it means to be wise in the midst of all of the, the hevel. And he, he would say, a little, with a little bit of wisdom, we can begin to find significance and depth and beauty in our lives. We can actually enjoy the gifts that God has given us. And so quickly, uh, chapter 9, verse 11 to 17, I'll sum that up in just a, a second here. Um, our teacher tells us that it's better to have wisdom than it is to have strength. So he gives us this example of this small city with, uh, which was just a few people in it and that is overtaken by a strong, great king. And so this strong king besieged the, the city probably quite easily. But in the small city, there's a man who's poor, but he's wise. And, and, and through his wisdom, he delivers the city. Uh, so his point is, it's better to have wisdom than it is to have might. But then uh, in verse 18 and verse 1 of chapter 10, um, we're, we're told that uh, even though wisdom is better than might, just a little bit of folly or foolishness can ruin that wisdom. Um, so verse 18 of chapter 9, uh, it says, Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. And we've seen this over and over again, haven't we? And these wise and honorable men and women who are ruined in a moment with just one foolish decision, one stupid tweet, or one inappropriate relationship ruins, brings shame upon everything they've built in their wisdom. Kohelet's saying, pursue wisdom, but be careful, because these, these flies that seem small and in, insignificant, we'll just shoo them away, they're insignificant, but just a few of them can ruin this costly, beautiful bottle of perfume. It says, be, be, be wise, be, be careful. So what does a life lived well look like? Uh, verse 2, um, this text is, is difficult because um, our teacher puts things bluntly. He says that wise people do this and foolish people do this. Um, and a lot of times as I've been studying this, I found that a lot of times I end up on the foolish side of things. It's not, not, uh, not easy to, to hear, but listen up. Verse 2 a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, 
but a fool's heart to the left. Um, any left-handed people in the room? Okay, sorry. Um, uh, the Bible generally, uh, he loves you, he's chosen you, he set his love on you, but the, the Bible generally treats the right side as the good side, okay? Um, so the right hand is associated with strength that saves and supports and protects. So read through the Psalms. Uh, David's always saying the, the right hand of the Lord protects me, saves me. Uh, the right hand was used to convey blessing. So when Jacob crosses his arms and places his right hand on Ephraim, he, he gives him the greater blessing. Um, the right hand was associated with authority, which is why Jesus sits on the right hand of the Father. And, and then we see at, in the final judgment, Jesus divides everyone into two groups. He, he divides the, the sheep on to the right, and these are the ones who are invited to inherit the kingdom, the blessing that's eternal. And then he, he divides the goats onto the left. These ones are told to depart from me, you're, you're cursed. So when Kohelet says, the fool is on the left, he's telling us that this person is going in the wrong direction, okay? It's not good to be on the left. Um, so here's a simple question is, what direction are you going in your life? It's a really simple d- question, but it's not a very popular one, is it? Because in our society, um, we're, we're told that you can just make your own way, carve out your own path. Like wisdom is good and useful, but it's rather subjective, isn't it? But rather, we're told here that there's a wise path to be on, and there's a foolish path to be on. We have all these different categories of different types of people, but then it all boils down to Kohelet saying, there's a wise way, and there's a foolish way. Um, Are you moving towards uh, temptation or away from evil? Are you moving in the right way of discipleship, or are you falling away spiritually? Are you drawing closer to the people of God, or are you going off by yourself? Only a fool would go in the wrong direction, we're told. Uh, Which way is your heart leaning? Toward God or away from Him? Uh, Do you you have a growing appetite for for the Word of God, or does it just taste kind of stale to you? Are you moving uh, towards or away from God in your daily prayer life? Are you getting more serious about the sin in your life? Or have you just stopped pursuing sanctification? Which way are you moving? One way is is wise, one way is foolish. Um, Verse 3, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. Um, I think this is similar to that uh, Psalm 14.1 that that says that um, the fool says in his heart there is no God. I don't think that 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 person is actually thinking in his heart, you know what, I don't think there's a God today. Um, It's rather his actions, it's the way he lives his life that proves that he doesn't believe. Um, In the same way, this fool in verse 3, I don't think he's going around introducing himself as a fool. Hey, I'm I'm Jonathan, I'm a big fool. Um, Rather, it's it's the way he's walking, It's, it's the fact that he lacks any sense of all that proves to everyone around him that he is in fact a fool. Like, you don't have to wear a I'm a fool t-shirt. You, you don't have to tell anyone. It's obvious. And this is part of the definition of a fool, isn't it? Like, the fool is the only one that doesn't recognize that they are a fool. Uh, one of the things that, that we've been, that Solomon has been showing us throughout the book is that people who are wise are people who understand that there's something bigger than them. 
that, that the world is, is completely upside down, but God has still pursued us in the midst of it all, and wise people are the ones who recognize their, their small place in the big picture, and they submit to God, uh, and, and they uh, walk in obedience to God in wisdom. The fool is the one who thinks they are indestructible and stand at the center of the universe. Uh, they don't believe that there's a wise way and a foolish way. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to walk where I want to walk. That's the fool. And this person feels big despite the fact that the universe screams out to them that they are small. So God has designed the universe to communicate to you how fragile and small and insignificant you are. Like if there's anything we've been taught is that we are being taught that you are finite and death is coming for you and it's inescapable. Um, my brother and I were uh, driving along the west coast of Ireland and uh, we had a tent in the back. We were just kind of camping and doing our thing and, and seeing the, the you know, beautiful country that we live in. And anybody been to the Cliffs of Moher? Uh, west coast, it is unbelievable. It's one of the most breathtaking places I've ever been. These cliffs on the, on the coast that are like 700 feet uh, drop. Like if you fell off, you are dead. Um, but it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. And we decided that uh, we want to we sleep here tonight. Like we want to pitch our tent on the cliff and, and spend the night. And you're not allowed to for obvious reasons, but um, maybe in, uh, you know, foolish wise, you can decide. We thought we're going to do our own thing. Um, and we, you know, went back out, hey, thanks everyone, uh, got in our car, and then drove around, uh, this is kind of evening time, the place was closing down, and we found a farmer's uh, field to park in, we left a note on the, on the window that, you know, this is what we're doing, um, we're being wise, <laughs> and we kind of trekked our way to, back to the cliffs, jumped the fence, and pitched our tent, like, probably this far from the stage, uh, uh, this 700 foot drop. And it was class, we had a little grill, some sausages, uh, watched the sun go down, it's it just really memorable and beautiful. But the next morning, we woke up and we unzipped the tent and this thick cloth, this fog had, had rolled in. You could literally see like two feet in front of you. So you walk out and you know there's that cliff down there. You, you can hear the waves crashing down 700 feet below, this gust of wind. There's no way to stand there and think, I'm in control. Like, I got this. A fool would think that. The fool does not recognize his place in the grand story of God's storytelling. He goes where he wants to go. He walks whatever path they please, and they heed not to God's wisdom. Uh, verse 4. If the anger of the, ru of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place. For calmness will lay great offenses to rest. I think he's thinking back to, that, to, the, to the wise man at the end of chapter 9 that, that delivered the besieged city. And he's saying that wisdom is better than might. So through this man's wisdom, he delivered the besieged city. But then when you read that, what happens next? Like, people hate him. Like, you'd think he'd become the hero of the story, but it says that he's despised. Um, instead, there's this thing that happens in this world where foolish people still rise to power. And, and you might try to get away from them, uh, but Kohelet says, guess what? They're everywhere. Like, no matter where you go, you're going to encounter a foolish leader. 
Welcome to this upside down, meaningless world over and over again where fools rise to power. But he says, stay calm, don't freak out, take a breath, don't run trying to move from place to place, trying to find a, a, a safe place in a broken world. There are foolish leaders everywhere. I, now, hear me, I don't think he's, he's kind of condoning uh, verbal, verbal abuse here. Okay? I don't think that he's saying that there's never a time for tyrants to be put down or for someone to walk away from a fight because sometimes there's wisdom in that. So when you're hearing all this, it, I'll just say this. If, you, if you're like in an, an abusive relationship, it's time to leave. It's time to get out of that. He's saying that ordinarily the best response to anger is to stay calm and not get angry in return. Um, sometime this week, reread 1 Peter chapter 2. Because um, Peter, he has this section uh, about acting wisely in this way, about submitting to kind of authority, even when the authority um, is kind of against you. Um, and he says that when we do this, and uh, when we act wisely in this way, that more and more we're becoming more like our prime example in this, our teacher Jesus. So 1 Peter 2.21 says, For this uh, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He, Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He's saying, be wise like Jesus. Let, let your calmness lay great offenses to rest. Verses 5 to 7 says, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly, foolishness, is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. And when I first read this, this passage, I, th- I thought like, yes. Like, we all love a bit of social justice, the filthy rich put in their place, the slaves liberated and placed on the high horse. Um, but be careful, because that's not what he's talking about here. And um, this is one of those verses that, if you immediately contextualize it to our day and age, you, you completely lose its meaning. What he's saying is, because of the foolishness in the world, this world has been completely turned upside down on its head. And we live in a world where folly and wickedness and stupidity and debauchery is exalted. And when doing what is right and what is real and what makes a difference in the world walks on the side of the road. And this is true, isn't it? Like, think, think who were the, the most famous people in the world a hundred years ago. They, they were the wise and the honorable ones, like scientists and doctors but now, the most, fool, the, 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 um, the most famous people in the world, the one who are set high, are people who video themselves doing stupid things and put it online for millions of people to laugh at them. These are our famous people. We live in a society where uh, anyone can get famous overnight, and it's almost never because they walk in wisdom. So what to do? <laughs> Verses 8 to 11. How do we live life in this upside-down world? He gives us a warning about life, and then he starts to help. So starting in verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. 
He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. So we have this picture of this person who, who wakes up this morning, and he has a shower, has his morning coffee, um, kisses his wife and his kids goodbye, um, and then heads off to work where his job is to dig ditches, okay? Um, he, he does this every day. Today is no different than any other day, except today when he's digging his ditch, he trips on a rock and he falls into the pit and he dies, um, another guy goes to his normal job where he breaks down walls for a living. But in the wall that he breaks down today, there's a snake in it that comes out and it bites him. So the, the picture Kohela is, is, is painting for us is life is hard and it's unpredictable. And um, no one controls the, the, the things that happen to you. No one's in control. But he says there's a wise way to do things. Um, and he uses this great illustration of this guy in the logs, this lumberjack, um, he takes his axe, and he doesn't just go out and starts uh, flailing away, hacking at trees. Instead, he takes the time and he sharpens his blade. So he, he sees that his blade is dull, and so he sharpens it, and he sharpens it, and then he goes down and he cuts down trees. And he's saying that there's a, a smart way to work. Like this lumberjack, don't, work smarter, not harder. It's okay to work hard. I'm sure chopping down a tree with a really sharp axe is, is difficult, but it's even more difficult if it's dull. He's saying that, that wise men and women, they, they know where they're going, they know what they're uh, going to do, but they also have a plan to get there. And I'll tell you about a conversation that I've been having over and over and over again for years. Um, like, real specifically, uh, just between uh, the guys and RMC, don't worry, I'm not going to rat you guys out, um, but we'll use this just as like a, a microcosm of all of the other uh, same conversations I've been having, is uh, within our guys, we really want three things in our life, and that's it. You know, we, we want to be really amazing husbands to our wives, and we want to be really good parents, really good dad that... What I mean by that is a dad that, in the end, I've shown my kids what it means to love Jesus and his church and to serve him. And then, lastly, uh, we ourselves want to be just the best disciples of Jesus that we can be, okay? That we, we, we love him, that we serve him with everything we have, and that's it. Those are the three things. Everything else can, whatever. But what I've learned over the years is that none of those things just happen because I want them to. None of those things just naturally fall into place, do they? Like nobody just stumbles into godliness. The, the majority of my days, rather, um, I wake up and I want to serve myself. I usually don't wake up being like, I just I want to serve Jesus today. At my marriage, if, if left unattended and just allowed to follow the natural progressions of things, it does not just get better and better and better. It's something that you have to work really hard at. And my kids, I have three kids, a five-year-old uh, boy and two girls, three-year-old and 10-month-old. Um, and our, our, our oldest, Abe, when you, when you pick him up from school, like he's five, but he's already starting to give you one-word answers. Like, hey, how was your day? It's good. Fun. 
what, what did you, what'd you learn today? I don't know. Or like, penguins? <laughs> um, I have to find ways to really engage with him. Um, so I've done this thing where I've uh, memorized some of his little friends' names. Don't even, I haven't even met them, but I've, I, I know what their names are. So I'll be like, hey, Abe, how's, what'd you do with Eli today? And he like looks up and he's like, how did you know who that was? That's my friend. Like me and Eli, we did this and then we played and this was funny. Like there's just, I have to find ways to, to crack him open and engage with him. Um, uh, there's my little girls. I know some of you love your kids, but I love them like more than anyone's ever loved anyone. Um, and I desperately want to be this dad that someday when they're these like grown beautiful women, they come home and they talk to me and they bring me their problems and I can embrace them and, and love them and we talk. But I've, I've realized that that's not just going to happen. Because even now, it's just easier on a Saturday morning to put them in front of Netflix so I can go make a coffee and catch up on my Twitter feed. Like all of these things that I want in my life, none of them will just happen because I want them to. Instead, you have to be intentional and deliberate about them. Uh, John Calvin talks about developing a rule of life. So if I want the primary goal in my life to be to cultivate a life of dwelling in the presence of Jesus, which should be all of your goals as well, um, what is it? What does it look like to actually do that? What are practical ways that I, that I plan to do this in my life? Like, I'm sick of having that same conversation of, um, I really feel like I need to start praying with my wife. But, but then I keep waiting on life to settle down. And, like, we're in this stage with three kids, and they're young, and it's crazy, and I'm just knackered. But life is going to start to calm down soon, right? Like, it's going to get more organized. We're going to get more focused. Older people are like, Pfft. like, I've learned that that's not ever going to happen. Like, already I know that. Life isn't going to get more calm. It's not going to get more organized. So what is our rule in life? What's our plan to actually make this happen, to start building this habit of praying together every day? So uh, we've recently decided, Jenny and I, uh, what we normally do is I come home, I wrestle with kids, dinner, it's madhouse. Uh, put them to bed, uh, clean up, and then like jammies on, cup of tea, eat a whole packet of biscuits, and, and just veg out. That's what we want to do. But we've decided that let's push that off. So get them to bed, push these things that aren't bad off, and just sit on the sofa and spend a little bit of time looking at each other and talking and, and praying. And that might be like for an hour. It might be for five minutes. But this is what our rule of life is going to be. And we're going to build this habit of dwelling in the presence of Jesus together. Um, and you know what? The first night that we did that, it was amazing. Like, it was incredible. But 24 hours later, I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to pray with you. I'm tired. Like, my soul doesn't want to do that. This is how fickle and foolish I am. But if we were wise, we will take the time to prepare our blade. Do you know where you are going, how you, how you want to get there? Like, I realize that this isn't the, the normal kind of sermon that you hear here. You know, like, this is kind of self-help, kind of practical stuff. And, but what I've learned is that there is wisdom in having a plan, of having a rule of life. 
And Matt Chandler said this, and I think it's so true, that it's not enough to just want to. Because eventually, you're just, your want-tos will turn into, I wish I would've. Isn't that true, older people? I know I'm young, but that's, that's what I've learned already. Verse 11, if the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Like, what good is it to want to charm a snake if, if you never take the steps to actually do it and then it bites you? You can desire to tame this animal all you want, but if you never actually get around to doing it and then it bites you, those desires you had in the first place, those I want to's, don't mean anything. And they'll eventually be, you know what, I really wish I would have. If you, if you want to charm this snake, you better have a plan to actually do it. You better brush up on your flute skills. <laughs> I don't know what else, like, what's the contextualized version of this? <laughs> like, how are you actually going to do it? It's, it's not enough to just know where you want to end up, what you would like to do. And it's wise to prepare, to make a plan, to put in place a rule of life that will help you get there. Listen to me. Are we saved by grace? Yes. Has he just chosen to, to love you? He's chosen you to be his people, not because of anything you've done? Yes. Has he given you his spirit to dwell inside you, to teach you and to guide you and to, to bring to remembrance the things that he said? Absolutely. But I'm learning that sanctification is a process that involves both your mind and God's mind. Uh, let's move on. Verse 12 to 14. The, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies his words, though no man knows what is, what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? Man, any time the Bible starts talking about my mouth, my speech, I get squirmish. Um, because being wise uh, with our mouths, how we talk to one another is like the most obvious thing in your life. Like if I say, you know what, don't, don't be tempted, don't think in temptation in this way, don't lust in your heart, you're like, okay, I got it. But if I start talking about what actually comes out of your mouth, ugh, like that just happens. Spurgeon once said, the doorstep to the temple of wisdom is the knowledge of your own ignorance. <laughs> and, and our speech is one of the easiest ways to see how ignorant we really are, isn't it? Our words are like the acid test of wisdom. And these verses alone, we could spend an entire sermon on, but I'm going to cram it down to uh, just a few minutes. Let me ask you this question. Um, what does the Bible have to say with how our words and our hearts are connected when Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So, so, if every, uh, so if the mouth only speaks what's in the heart, then every time we say something, every time you say something, it's either revealing wisdom or foolishness inside. So the wise person speaks wisdom because there's wisdom in his heart. Remember verse 12 says the, the words of the wise man's mouth uh, win him favor. Um, that, that word favor is, is literally um, the Hebrew word grace, which is favor that's undeserved. So uh, it's, uh, it's, it's easy to, you know, uh, a wise person's mouth um, is, you know, 
People will see that you're wise. It'll win him favor. But what I think this verse is really saying is a wise person's words show this kind of grace to other people. This, they, they are messages of blessing. So the point of the verse is not that wise speech will, will get us something from people, favor, but that they will enable us to give something to people. I, I like better how the, the NASB translates this. It says, words from the mouth of the wise man are gracious. Um, which is exactly the opposite way we normally use our words, isn't it? The way the world uses words. And words have the power to help us get what we want. And we use them to get a laugh. We use them to get attention. Um, we use them to get someone to do something for us. Uh, we use words to get a job or to get a partner. We use words to build ourselves up and to tear other people down. But do you use words as instruments of grace? Do, do we speak for the good of others or as a way of achieving our own agenda? A wise person uh, is, is slow to speak, we're told, okay? So Ecclesiastes 6.11, James 1.19 says, uh, be quick to hear, quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. So wisdom chooses each word wisely. As Plato, say, Plato says, a wise person speaks because they have something to say. A foolish person speaks because they have to say something. That wasn't in my, my, my notes, a little Plato uh, quote. <laughs> it's a freebie. Uh, here's a quick list of, of how a wise person speaks um, by Philip Ryken. Firstly, a wise person offers verbal praise and audible thanksgiving to God. Not cursing him, but blessing him. This is wise because it helps us remember who we are in the grand scheme of things. Okay, so we, so we speak, we sing words of, of worship like we do here. It's wise to do that. Um, secondly, a wise person, uh, when they speak, they use more words of encouragement uh, rather than criticism when speaking to other people. They, they speak to bring out the best in other people, to build them up, rather than, than always finding ways to find fault in them. Uh, thirdly, a wise person speaks the truth to his neighbor. It's Ephesians 2, 4, 25. And we do this not stretching it for our own personal advantage, but saying what needs to be said in a loving way. This includes speaking out against injustice and confronting someone who's doing something wrong. When it is our God-given place to do so, the wise person uses wise words to speak hard truths when they need to be spoken. It takes courage to do that. Let me say thanks to Lucas for doing that recently. Sees foolish things, harmful things that are happening in our, in our culture and wisely and graciously spoke out against that. Well done, brother. A wise person speaks with gentleness, not unrighteous anger. A wise person knows how to use reconciling words like I'm sorry and please forgive me. Those aren't easy to say. A wise person speaks words of love and affection. So I already said how useless empty words are. You need action. But words are important too, aren't they? Like sometimes a simple I love you is the wisest thing you can say in a moment. Are you choosing your words wisely? Since it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks, wise, wise speech requires a wise heart, a heart that's overflowing with the love of God. And turn over to Ephesians, Ephesians 3, 
verse 14. As you do that, I want you to remember what Kohelet said at the beginning of this verse, in verse 2, um, a wise heart inclines us to, to do the right thing. So you don't just going to do the right thing. You need a wise heart first. You need a wise heart in order for wise words to come out of your mouth. And we're told in Ephesians 3 that that's a gift from God whose son lives in our hearts through faith. So Ephesians 3.14, Paul's praying this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Like when this happens, when we are filled with the fullness of God, when we're strengthened through the power of his spirit in our inner beings, when Christ dwells in our hearts, it's out of this abundance that our speech begins to flow with wisdom. How, how, do you, how does this happen? How do, you, how do you get these full, wise hearts? He says, when you are rooted and grounded in his love. So remember what Jesus says in John 15? He says, he says that we start to bear fruit when we stay connected to him. When, when he says, when you abide in me and I abide in you, when you, the branch, stay connected to me, the vine, the source of all life and power and wisdom, it's only then that you will begin to bear much fruit. It's only then that your speech begins to be gracious and gentle and wise and life-giving. So um, I'm saying that the, 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 I can, the, I can, I'm the best that I can be I, I'm that, that best husband, that best dad, not necessarily when I figure out all the best practices, but rather when I have been dwelling in the presence of Jesus. Right? When I've been abiding in his love, when I'm filled with him, when I'm abiding with him, the source of all life and power and wisdom, it's then that fruit begins to grow. It's then, it's by dwelling in his presence that my heart is filled with the knowledge of his love, with power, and our speech begins to flow graciously because we have Christ-filled hearts. Which brings us back to the question, what's your plan to do that? Like, you should be praying for it. Paul's praying desperately for that. But also, you don't just stumble into it. What, what's your rule of life? How are you going to be intentional about dwelling in the presence of Jesus every single day? What does that look like in your life? And lastly, let's blast through the rest of these verses. Uh, Verse 15, the toil of a fool wearies him. Why does he get tired? For he doesn't know the way to the city. So the person who who knows where they're going, uh, they know what they're trying to be, and, and they have this plan of how they're going to get there. People who don't do that tend to get exhausted in life because they are walking and walking, but they're not going anywhere. They, they exemplify this, this treadmill in Ecclesiastes that, that, that Solomon's been talking about, where you're, you're running and you're running, but you're not going anywhere. What's the point? So an example of this is um, like a marriage. At times, the going is uphill at this incredible um, uh, angle. 
Like there can be days, there can be weeks, there can be months, there can be years for some of you where it's really, really hard. But having an end goal is really helpful. Like just having that end goal of being old and wrinkly and saggy and walking down the road, holding hands, praising God for, for all that he's done in your life, that, that can help us not be overwhelmed. Like Paul does this in, in just his Christian life. He, has, he's, he says, I'm pressing on towards the end of the race, that this, this prize that's going to be so sweet, and I'm not being overwhelmed because I know the end. The fool doesn't know the end goal, where they're headed. They tend to get overwhelmed by nothing. And they have a tendency to do this in verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. So uh, people who have no idea where they're going, uh, they have a tendency to start the party before anyone else even gets there. They're, they're drinking before the party even begins, before the sun even goes down. Verse 17, happy are you, O land, rather, when your king is the son of nobility. Your king's the son of nobility. They know they're going to be the, they're the son of nobility. And your princes feast at the proper time, not for strength, uh, for strength and not for drunkenness. I, I love this line because it's saying that there's a proper time to party. There's a time to party, but it's for strength. It's a type of feast that strengthens the soul. But look here, what happens to the person who has no clue where they're going, where they're supposed to be. Uh, through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. So their worlds just begin, begin to unravel. And then finally, verse 19, bread is for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Amen to that one, right? Um, this is one of those verses that you've... You really have to read kind of backwards to, to really understand it. So um, it's not a sin to be poor. It's a sin to be lazy. And so poor people aren't necessarily foolish. Lazy people are. And he's saying by uh, um, money answers everything, he says. And by saying that, he's, he means that money affords us opportunity. So uh, by working hard, by not being lazy... Um, money enables you to pay your rent or your mortgage so that you have a place to stay. Money enables you to buy food for your family and for other people. Money enables you to buy a big dining room table. Um, is bread really for laughter? Like, have you ever lulled because you had a piece of bread? <laughs> I have not. Uh, what Kohelet's referencing here, again, is the meal. Why does he keep coming back to this meal? Like every chapter, he says, life is meaningless. You're going to end up like dust. It's all, but don't forget to, to feast. Don't forget to eat and drink and enjoy each other. He says, work hard, enjoy your toil, and then spend your money wisely. Buy a big dinner table so that your friends and your neighbors can come over and eat your bread, drink your wine responsibly, and just laugh at each other and enjoy each other's uh, company for the rest of the night. That's wisdom, we're told. So the wise person knows where she is going, how, uh, they, how, who she wants to be, knows where they are, uh, are being called to be. Um, uh, they surround themselves with wise people, um, being intentional with dwelling in the presence of Jesus, gaining wisdom, and they party to bring strength, not drunkenness, not, not, never to numb uh, the, the reality of life. 
and they have a great dining room table. Listen, um, how we began, you have been chosen. He has set his love on you. You, you. you used to be an orphan, and now you've been brought into this incredible family. You, you used to um, be dead, and he's brought you to life. And he's done all of this because he loves you. For no, he loves you. And he's calling you to love him in return. And we do this by walking in wisdom, walking in light, rather than foolishness that says there is no God. How are we going to do that? Let's pray. Let's stand. Father, help us to, to value wisdom. This is not the norm for our culture. Help us to people who, who desire, who, 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 who develop these rules of lives, these disciplines, not, not for, uh, d- because we're, we have this compelling uh, legalistic and uh, we have to do this. We desire to, to walk in wisdom, to walk in light, for the sole reason of loving you, of pleasing you. Help us to do this together, God. We are not called to, to, to make plans on our own. We are called to be part of a family where we walk after you, we seek after you together. We love you, Jesus. Help this to to be our words. Help this to be in our hearts. Help this to be uh, in the ways we walk. All for the reason to to show the world that we love you, that you are real. We just want to bless your name, Lord. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen.